You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. federal government issues voluntary security guidelines possible privilege escalation with Google Cloud, an APT compromises Jump Cloud, Bin 8 reworks its sardonic backdoor and continues its shift to ransomware. Ben Yellen looks at privacy legislation coming out of Massachusetts. Our guest is Alastair Parr of Prevalent, discussing GDPR and third-party risk. And some noteworthy Russian cybercrime. They don't seem to be serving any political masters. They just want to get paid. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. The U.S. federal government has issued some standards and guidelines that affect cybersecurity practices. The NSA and CISA have issued guidance for 5G network slicing, that is, the preparation of a set of logical networks that ride atop a common infrastructure. The guidance, in their words, is intended to help foster communication amongst mobile network operators, hardware manufacturers, software developers, non-mobile network operators, systems integrators, and network slice customers in the hopes that it may facilitate increased resiliency and security hardening within network slicing. CISA has also published a fact sheet outlining free tools for cloud environments to help businesses transitioning into a cloud environment identify proper tools and techniques necessary for the protection of critical assets and data security. And just this morning, the White House has announced a cybersecurity labeling program for smart devices. It's been anticipated for some time. Under the proposed new program, consumers would see a newly created U.S. cyber trust mark in the form of a distinct shield logo applied to products meeting established cybersecurity criteria. The goal of the program is to provide tools for consumers to make informed decisions about the relative security of products they choose to bring into their homes. Manufacturers and retailers who have committed to the voluntary program include Amazon, Best Buy, Google, LG Electronics, Logitech, and Samsung. 
Orca Security reports a privilege escalation vulnerability, bad.build, in Google Cloud that could open the door to supply chain attacks by allowing an attacker to infect users and customers. Orca wrote this morning, As we have seen with these solar winds and recent 3CX and MoveIt supply chain attacks, this can have far-reaching consequences. Orca's report explains, By abusing this flaw that enables the impersonation of the default cloud build service account, an attacker can manipulate images in Google's artifact registry and inject malicious code. Any applications built from the manipulated images are then affected, with potential outcomes including denial-of-service attacks, data theft, and the spread of malware. Orca Security has alerted Google, and Google has closed the vulnerability, But Orca suggests that affected organizations pay close attention to the details of their instances. Orca writes, The revoked permission wasn't related to artifact registry, which turns the supply chain risk into a persistent one. In view of this, it's important that organizations pay close attention to the behavior of the default Google Cloud Build Service account to detect any possible malicious behavior. Applying the principle of least privilege and implementing cloud detection and response capabilities to identify anomalies are some of the recommendations for reducing risk. JumpCloud announced that its systems were breached in a sophisticated attack conducted by a state-sponsored threat actor. On June 27th, they found unauthorized access to a specific area of their infrastructure— and determined that some of that access had begun as early as June 22nd. They saw initially no evidence of an effect on customers, but they took various precautions that included rotating credentials and rebuilding infrastructure in an effort to shore up their network and perimeter. The company is convinced the attack was sponsored by a nation-state, but JumpCloud is unsure which state was behind the attack. In further forensic investigation, JumpCloud discovered further unauthorized activity in the form of unusual activity in the commands framework for a small set of customers. In response, JumpCloud performed a force rotation of all of the admin API keys on July 5th, the same day the unusual activity was discovered. As Ars Technica explains, JumpCloud hosts a user base of over 200,000 organizations with 5,000 paying customers, including Cars.com, GoFundMe, and Foursquare. JumpCloud also engaged its prepared incident response plan, including the participation of their incident response partner and notified law enforcement authorities. The Symantec Threat Hunter team has released a report detailing a new variant of the sardonic backdoor associated with the cybercriminal gang Sysfinx, also known as Fin8. This new variant of Sardonic is intended to deliver the Noberis ransomware. The Sysfinx tool was discovered in 2022 when it was discovered delivering White Rabbit ransomware. Symantec explained that Fin8's shift toward ransomware was observed in 2021 after the gang infected several compromised systems in the financial sector with the Ragnar ransomware. Symantec writes... The Sysfinx group's move to ransomware suggests that the threat actors may be diversifying their focus in an effort to maximize profits from compromised organizations. Symantec explains that the cybercrime gang has revised its tools, noting mainly that the newly reworked backdoor has been rewritten in C 
as opposed to its previous version, which was written in C++. Additionally, a new backdoor variant seems to be embedded indirectly into a PowerShell script, which differs from its previous version, in which it featured an intermediate downloader shellcode that downloads and executes the backdoor. Symantec concludes its report with a snapshot of the gang, stating, Sysfinks continues to develop and improve its capabilities and malware delivery infrastructure, periodically refining its tools and tactics to avoid detection. The group's decision to expand from point-of-sale attacks to the deployment of ransomware demonstrates the threat actor's dedication to maximizing profits from victim organizations. The tools and tactics detailed in this report serve to underscore how this highly skilled financial threat actor remains a serious threat to organizations. And finally, Integritas! That's what we've heard the Roman legionnaires would say to their centurion, to report that their armor and the rest of their gear was intact and in order, and that they themselves were standing tall and looking good. Integritas, one, whole, solid, consistent with one's duty, or more generally with one's values. That's integrity. And it's worth remembering that there can be a kind of integrity even among criminals, a bit of honor among thieves, We've grown accustomed to seeing criminal gangs and hacktivists function during the hybrid war Russia has unleashed against Ukraine as either privateers or auxiliaries operating in the interest of one of the belligerents. Usually, that belligerent has been Russia and the extent to which the Russian security and intelligence agents have made use of their country's criminal classes is one of the striking features of the war in cyberspace. It seems, however, that at least one Russian or at least Russophone cyber gang, Red Curl, has continued to act in a purely criminal fashion, not obviously working in the interest of any government. Researchers at FACCT, which the record describes as an offshoot of Group IB, describe Red Curl's action against both Russian and Australian targets. The gang's initial approach is through phishing, Their goal isn't either the installation of ransomware or the threat of extortion through doxing. Rather, Red Curl engages in commercial espionage, seeking to steal valuable business information for subsequent resale in the C2C market. About half of Red Curl's attacks have hit Russian targets. The other half have been distributed across Ukraine, Canada, and various European countries. We grudgingly admit that there's something refreshing about a gang that's in it just to get paid, not caring about national interest or glory. There's a kind of criminal integrity here. It's a base and deplorable integrity, but there's a consistency in their values. Still, we hope they receive some approximation of justice and that some authority somewhere brings them to book. Whether it's the FBI or the FSB, the police or the militia, it doesn't much matter. Good hunting, John or Jane Law, wherever you may be. By the way, we hope that stuff about legionnaires and centurions and integritas is true. Our historical desk is the source, and they usually get it right, but sometimes we wonder if they get their Roman history from Tacitus or from watching reruns of Gladiator on Netflix. In any case, integritas! Coming up after the break, 
Ben Yellen looks at privacy legislation coming out of Massachusetts. Our guest is Alastair Parr of Prevalent, discussing GDPR and third-party risk. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. GDPR has been in effect for just over five years now, and in their 2023 third-party risk management study, the team at security firm Prevalent looked at the impact of GDPR on the practice of third-party management with its treatment of privacy as a core requirement. Alastair Parr is Senior Vice President of Global Products and Delivery at Prevalent. What we are experiencing is an uptake in things such as quantity of identified data breaches or impacts from a third party. And we actually allocate and equate some of that to the fact that people have improved visibility. And that's a general trend when you start looking at the general insights across the space is that we see increased volume of issues and incidents. And that's down to the fact that there is a a plethora of tools and technologies out there to aggregate the data at scale that people didn't necessarily have several years ago. So visibility has certainly improved, but people still have ultimately automation issues uh, and remediation issues across the space. It seems to me to be, on the surface at any way, to be such a daunting task, you know, because when you think about all of your third-party suppliers and then you think about their suppliers, what do you recommend in terms of an approach to this, to break this down into manageable pieces? Completely agree. So absolutely. The the challenge is that it is typically we're talking thousands, tens of thousands of third parties, and it's a very daunting and overwhelming challenge. So typically we see people reaching out, trying to understand as 
how can I actually right-size that into something that's manageable, regardless of whatever automation tools that I have, uh, regardless of how engaged the third parties are or how accurate the vendor inventory is, people ultimately need to understand is how can I right-size that uh, so that I can invest what limited time and effort I have into the right areas. And the people who are successful there, are, are there any common elements? Yes, very much so. So the most successful third-party risk and lifecycle programs that we see tend to be fixated on the internal focus as much as they are the external. Of course, vendor interactions is important, being able to aggregate the data uh, and work with the third parties to remediate core deficiencies and dependencies. But the internal aspect is equally important, being able to build up that vendor inventory with the business, getting the business and the stakeholders involved uh, and ultimately invested in the program is foundational. So one of the key findings that we found is that while I think it's circa 71% of programs are actually owned by the information security team, uh, we are seeing circa 63% or 53% of the third-party relationships being owned by procurement or business owners, respectively. So mm -hmm. there's a sort of a seesaw approach where you need to have the buy-in and the vested uh, capabilities and support of the business in order to be able to drive the program effectively. And to what degree is this a, a technology issue of having the right tools to come at this with versus a personnel issue and you know, training your employees, things like that? I would say more often than not, it's a process first issue. So the technologies are out there to supplement, support, automate, and scale the processes. But foundationally, if the processes aren't right in the case of who and how do we reach out to the third parties, how do we react and interact with, with the data outputs that we get? It's very process-orientated. You need the business involved. You need compliance, audit, procurement, the business owners, execs, of course, and InfoSec and risk management all really working together and being a sort of a cohesive unit. What are your recommendations for that security person who has to make the case for this to their board, to the powers that be, to justify a program like this? So one of the biggest challenges I think they face is the fact that it's not necessarily a revenue generating function. It's a case of, it, it's an insurance mechanism. They're addressing and managing risk to a proportionate level so that things don't happen. And what certainly helps is when you start seeing incidents and events occur where third parties have had data breaches or events, and you've been able to, to detect it and react to it accordingly. So using legacy insurance mechanisms where you've been able to avoid adverse reputational damage uh, from historical events is certainly useful. But then also identifying how you can use the program to actually save through the procurement cycle. So for example, we've identified issues and incidents with um, operational resilience of third parties, or their contracts aren't standing up. People using that leverage in the renegotiation cycle to actually deliver better services, reduce cost, etc. So there is a potentially a, a dollar element to it as well. What do you suppose the future holds for third-party risk management? Where do you see us headed here? Good question. So one of the long-standing headaches, I think, in third-party risk management is that interaction between vendors and, of course, the, the business itself. There's a heavy reliance on things like assessments. There's a lack of standardization on assessment structures, which isn't going away, purely because each organization typically has their own, their own variants. In fact, uh, over 70% of our customers alone, the hundreds of programs that we manage, actually use custom content and assessments 
in their programs. That's not going away. So what we start and what we expect to see is components such as AI ultimately helping in translating and adapting various content sources into the answers that we need. So programs don't care about assessments. They care about results. They care about risks. So however we aggregate the data, whether it's SOC 2 reports, uh, whether it's proprietary policy documentation, as long as we can analyze it at scale and be able to translate that into tangible risks and context, that's very much where the, the entire third-party estate uh, and environment is really going to head. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight. I mean, I, I think in particular that that translation layer to be able to make your case to the board and to your colleagues uh, is so important. And, and yet I think it's my experience that lots of folks still struggle with that. Yes, absolutely. So the the ability to translate the technical language of risks bar colors, you know, red is bad, uh, <laughs> can be lost on some programs. So you're absolutely right. So when we tend to build uh, KPIs and KRI material for, for the boards and the execs, it, it tends to be very much persona focused. We are looking at making sure that we've got the right data points that they're curious about and they're interested in, which help them understand, are they at risk? That's Alastair Parr from Prevalent. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. So interesting proposed legislation coming out of Massachusetts here when it comes to the buying and selling of location data. Uh, What's going on here, Ben? So this law would be the first of its kind in a state legislature across the country. Massachusetts lawmakers in both the State House and Senate are weighing a near total ban on the buying and selling of location data drawn from mobile devices in the state. Hmm. Uh, Other laws uh, controlled by both Democratic and Republican legislatures have passed broad data privacy legislation, but this would be the first that would institute a near total ban on buying and selling of this location data. So one element of the law would institute a warrant requirement for law enforcement access to this data. That's important. It really codifies the Supreme Court's holding in the Carpenter decision from 2018, prevent warrantless uh, searches of historical cell site location information. Would this also prevent law enforcement from purchasing that data without a warrant? It would. Any law enforcement access without a warrant would be uh, prohibited. The broader prohibition uh, that's outlined in this law, which I think is more significant, is data brokers would be banned from buying and selling location information about state residents without court authorization. Hmm. So there are limited exceptions in circumstances where it would be useful to the consumer, things like uh, sharing location for ride-sharing purposes— for weather applications, uh, et cetera. But the law would be certainly the broadest in this country and it would have a major uh, impact. There's uh, a coalition of civil liberties and privacy groups that are supporting this legislation, thinking that it could be a test case uh, for broader nationwide legislation that Hmm. would institute bans on buying and selling location data. We've seen similar laws proposed at the federal level, though not come anywhere close to being enacted uh, to this point. Mm -hmm. But there's pretty broad opposition as well. Uh, There is a trade association 
that spoke in opposition at a recent joint hearing on this bill. A lawyer named Andrew Kingman, who was representing this trade association, the State Privacy and Security Coalition, said that while they support heightened protections uh, for certain types of personal data, that this law is just overbroad. Um, they should look at some other states, including neighboring Connecticut, which passed a data privacy law, uh, but didn't go as far as out, having an outright ban on data brokers, on buying and selling this data. Hmm. Uh, rather, uh, it gives consumers the ability to opt out of sale. So it's still providing consumers with a, a choice. If the consumers find uh, the data that these companies are collecting useful for their own purposes, then the consumer can consent to that type of collection. But uh, I think that certainly does not go far enough for some of these privacy and civil liberties advocates who see that not only are companies purchasing this data, uh, but local police departments and federal agencies have also purchased location information and are using it for law enforcement purposes. And that's kind of an end around of the Fourth Amendment that groups like the ACLU see as, as very dangerous. Right. And there's a huge difference between a, an opt-in and an opt-out by default. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the opt-out means that you have to be technologically savvy enough to take some action to opt right. out of it. You, <laughs> you could to... bet they'll hide it somewhere. Oh, like... they'll hide it somewhere deep in the settings. <laughs> right, yeah, right, exactly. You're gonna, your uh, thumbs are going to get tired trying to find that <laughs> right, uh, uh, right. page where you can opt out. <laughs> Whereas an opt-in, you know, that that's really the, uh, the reverse. It kind of goes back to a concept, ironically, from a Massachusetts academic himself cast Sunstein on the idea of a nudge, that it makes a huge difference what the default is, mm -hmm. because people are so unable or reluctant to take action to either opt in or opt out that whether the default is opt in or opt out ends up making a huge difference. Yeah. Interesting that this has also caught the attention of abortion rights advocates. What, what's their interest here? Yeah. So abortion rights advocates have argued persuasively that phone location data, uh, potentially, particularly when it's available for sale, could lead to state governments and state where uh, abortions have been either curtailed or prohibited entirely uh, after the Dobbs decision last year to track people traveling out of state seeking the procedure for the purpose of instituting or uh, initiating prosecution. Hmm. And that's certainly a valid concern uh, for abortion rights advocates. I think uh, the fact that this data is widely available, uh, that it could be accessed without a warrant, that all it takes is a chunk of change to purchase the data, uh, I think is particularly dangerous for individuals seeking to travel out of state to obtain uh, abortions. Hmm. Uh, and it's not just abortions that have raised particular privacy concerns. They also mentioned this article, digital stalking, national security threats. Mm -hmm. All of those things can present themselves as problems when data is available for sale. So we have these kind of particular circumstances that have raised concerns for these groups. And I think that's part of the impetus behind the push for this legislation. Is it likely, given the makeup of the Massachusetts uh, legislature, that, that this will move forward? What, what do you think? Yes, I, I would have to say uh, the prognosis is quite positive. Mm -hmm. uh, the Massachusetts legislatures are dominated by Democrats. There's like five Republicans in the entire Massachusetts state legislature. Uh. Uh, the current majority leader of the Massachusetts state Senate is the sponsor of this piece of legislation. She testified for it 
uh, at the hearing. So you have a pretty powerful person aligned with this legislation. The governor uh, is a Democrat as well, Um, though that doesn't really matter since the legislature has veto-proof majorities. Uh, But yeah, the prognosis, I think, for this legislation is, is quite positive. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. An interesting development for sure. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. 
That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. <laughs> 